We think the young are not loyal. I argue that they are quite loyal to the person they work for, but not necessarily to the organization. These kids today. Okay, boomer. Uh oh. Our generation's not quite seeing eye to eye at your vet hospital. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today, the organizational behavior consultant with an eye on generations is Chris DeSantis. DeSantis was director of training and development for the American Medical Association, so it's fair to say he has thoughts about how the generations are learning and communicating. His book, Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work, was good, but I was skeptical initially. In the first half, DeSantis argues for the importance of recognizing these generational waves, and the back half has suggestions. But first, let's get into it first with skepticism. Literally a week and a half to two weeks before I reached out to you about your book, I had just been talking to somebody about like generational cohorts or nonsense. They were made up as a marketing scheme for marketing originally. This is not a thing. Everyone overemphasizes the differences between boomers and Gen X and millennials and Gen Z and whatever. And then I'm like, but okay. So I came to your book. I'm like, ooh, I'm really resistant to this. So I definitely need to read it. I was skeptical, and now I am largely resold on, oh, I'm excited again about thinking about this. So maybe in your experience, when someone approaches you, when you tell them, I'm thinking about generations and how this is interacting in the workplace, and somebody's like, oh, generations, I'm so sick of hearing that. How do you try to sell the skeptics on generations? They're a thing. It's an interesting question because it's a sort of a layered question because uh, I don't know if I can change people's minds in one exchange, meaning that, look, you have an opinion of something, right? And it's predicated on something that you see and observe, and that's fine. And I tend to agree with people in saying, look, you should be skeptical because to your point you've already addressed, there's an overemphasis on these distinctions. And I think there are perceptual differences, meaning, okay, I see you as different than me, but I also think there's actual differences, but the actual differences probably aren't as pronounced as we might think that they are. Like, this isn't a different species. Think of it this way. It's a temporal culture. It's the culture that is relative to their experiences is how they express themselves against my own culture relative to my experiences and how I express myself based on how I experienced life growing up. So I see their point. In fact, there was a book that came out in England called Generations, and he said there really aren't many differences between that, and it's a bogus industry, which I thought was very interesting, because then he went on to say, when I speak on this topic, I think, well, there's an irony in this. If the guy doesn't even see his own irony of saying, this is a bogus industry, oh, by the way, when I speak on this topic, I thought, okay. But he made a good point, and this is the other point that I talk about, too, is that Look, this is not a silo. These are constructs. You know, when you have these 20 years of time between, you know, a boomer born of 44, 64, that's a construct in terms of the silo we've created, but that's not necessarily indicative of everybody's experience. It's indicative of many people's experience, probably, which shapes the perception. And that goes back to your point. It's the perceptual sort of uh, view that I have of the other or, and then with that, I also have views of those who follow me or those who preceded me that are distinct from that. 
So I know I'm going a long way on this answer here. I hope I even came close to what you asked me. <laughs> you did. And I like your emphasis on perceptual instead of actual, because I feel like a lot of times people sit down with the charts and they say, well, the exceptions that sort of disprove this rule. And yes. are we really that different? 20 years? Sure. You had a different television. We all watch stuff. We all read stuff. What's yes. the difference? The first half of your book is really devoted to, in a very interesting way, justifying a look at the perceptions these different generations in America have of each other. And it seemed particularly poignant right now, because I think there's two issues that are floating around the workforce right now that everyone seems to be talking about in business. One is this issue of, regardless of whether it's as real a thing or not, quiet quitting, effectively about people becoming disengaged at work and not quitting, but no longer doing extra or no longer working as hard as they did before. So they're, they're disengaged, they're disenchanted, they're frustrated. And then also with that, with the pandemic and some people working from home, most veterinary professionals did not have this. They had to come to clinic. But lots of people had more flexible work arrangements. And you can feel this tension as these older managers and bosses and CEOs right now think it's important to the culture. We all need to get back in the office. And the workers who were doing good work for two years within the pandemic are like, but I want flexible work arrangements. And I think these are two examples of some generational thing. The managers don't know what the people are looking for and they're quiet quitting. And the managers don't know that these people are reasonably enough saying, I want more flexible work arrangements. So can you speak to those two things? I know that's a big thing. (laughs) Yeah, let me start with the first one because in the book I talk about this notion of I'm an older generation, I'm a boomer. And when we came into the workplace, we were probably the last of the, I will call the last of the employees under the covenant. And the covenant was if you work hard, you had a job for life. That was almost a guarantee. This is why we had all those pensions. And so you had loyal employees that would do anything asked of them because they knew if I just follow through, I will have this job in perpetuity, and then I will retire, and I will be a happy camper as a consequence of that. That was real for a while. Now what we have, and by the way, this we slowly eroded the covenant, as it were, and now we've moved into entirely, I will call a transactional marketplace for work. I will do for you in exchange for what I get from you. This is an exchange. I'll give you an example of how this plays out in terms of just a simple thing like an interview. For instance, when I was interviewing, I would never have said at the beginning of an interview, so what's your vacation policy? You see, the very idea of me saying to somebody, wait a second, I'm going to give you a job here, and you're asking me about vacations? What are you asking me about? You don't want this badly enough. But when we move into this transactional environment, it's very natural for them to say, what do you got for me? What am I getting for what I'm giving? So this notion of loyalty in terms of, uh, quite frankly, what we do is we misalign here. We think the young are not loyal. I argue that they are quite loyal to the person they work for, but not necessarily to the organization. You see, I lived in a world where I might have had a, a really bad boss. Then I'll say, okay, I'll outwit you. Then I get another bad boss. I'll outwit you. You know, eventually I get to be the bad boss. You know what I'm saying? If I wait long enough, I get my turn. <laughs> yes. Right? right? Now, in this world, they're saying, you have a really bad boss. You are my experience. And if this is my experience, why would I have it here when I can just move on to the next place? And that's what we've yes. done. We've taken the anchor away in that sense. But to your point, this quiet quitting has a lot to do with how we design the work. Look, Again, you will tolerate a lot more grief if I promise you, you will always have a job. If I promise you that. The covenant. So that would be the covenant. I promise we'll keep you here. 
Exactly. Yeah. You will tolerate all kinds of grief. Now, if there is no promise, all of a sudden the grief becomes a little more apparent. So uh, this quiet quitting is to saying, why would I give you more than 40 or 50 hours a week for what? For what? Where's the gain here? Where Where is your return to me? Where is your promise to me? And so the only promise I think an employer can make is really, I'm going to develop you. I'm going to give you engaging work. I'm going to pay attention to your needs and wants. You're going to pay attention to mine. You're going to grow the business as I grow. My point would be is they are more collaborative in their engagement with the work and the kind of work that they do. So I think that's probably what we have to consider in the future as opposed to just thinking, you do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it, which is what I lived with. So it's interesting. You had a line in the book that jumped out at me and I wrote it down, which means it was important to me. Loyalty is an outcome of promises kept, not promises made. And I think what you're talking about is initially when you take this job, we promise this about this organization. And now I think the workers we've all lived now in decades in the American economy where we know, just as you've said, it's the people around you that you work with. Because to me, people are attached to brands in a way, but people being attached to corporations saying the corporation makes me a promise, I just don't think the new worker thinks that way anymore. My boss makes me a promise. And if my boss makes a promise and keeps it, that's a check in his or her column. And I'm more loyal to them. Exactly. You see, I think what you're hitting on, the brand is important to any buyer in the sense that if you're going to work for somewhere, I want to work for somewhere that has sort of a social responsibility component or is doing good for mankind, all of the things around that. That's fine. But when I get in there, that's the sort of the, the purpose of the organization and its direction. But when I get in there, the actuality has to reflect that in terms of how I am treated. And if there's a disconnect between that sort of perception of what I should, you know, what this brand is supposed to represent and what I actually experience, I walk. When you walk into a situation and you're talking to people where they suspect there are some miscommunication or misperceptions around the generations inside that workspace, what are the things manifesting? You've mentioned the boomers, maybe some boomers, especially ones that are in the middle and at the end of it, if they were with a company for a long time, have the perception that I work for companies that have this covenant. And even right. if that's not true of their company now, just as you said, they're holding on to that perception that that is true of the world, even if it's not really true of the world anymore. So when you come in, what are the differences, the clear differences you see maybe between the boomers and the Gen X, the Gen X and the millennials? Sure, and maybe you don't sure. have to speak to Gen Z because you said they're developing. Well, I can speak to that a little bit, but that's be okay. quite speculative just because I think the identity of who you are comes more uh, sort of steps forward when it's in conflict with all the identities around you. I mean, you're saying you are not who you are as an abstract. You are who you are in the encounters you have with others. You see, it's the consequence yes. of the encounter. We are social creatures. It's the fact that there's a book on this called Social. And what they look, I think his name is Lieberman. His point was that, look, I am not who I think I am. I'm who I think you think I am to some degree. So all the feedback that you get from all these other people around you and saying, oh, you're really clever. Or you're really funny. You're really all of a sudden you start to think, well, I must be really clever. I must be really funny because other people are saying that about me. So it's the validation that we receive from others. Or you're really out of it. You're not getting yes. it. You don't understand us. So either way, positive or negative feedback you're getting, right? You don't think about it. If it's all the same and you all share the same culture and nobody questions it, you're right. You don't think about who you are as right. much. Exactly. But I'll tell you what happens is these are the Pygmalion or the Golem effect. The Pygmalion effect is my fair lady. It says, look, I believe I don't ever to say to you, Brendan, that you're a wonderful human being. But if I treat you as that, you become something of more like that than away from it. But if I believe you're a horrible person, I don't have to say that to you. I treat you in a way I ignore you. I'm curt with you. I put you off. All of a sudden you become more horrible as a consequence because what? That's what you think. Then that's what I am. 
So it's very interesting. We have input into how others, you know, how they engage in the workplace, yet we give them sole responsibility for the action and we take none of that responsibility. That's a problem. So I hope that makes sense if I'm saying this in terms of a manager. A manager really has to take some responsibility for how he treats or she treats those who are, you know, working on their behalf. I should make this point to the audiences. I don't believe, as I said earlier, that these are silos. A boomer is described in this 20-year window. I believe these are waves. I believe that the front end of a generation sort of experiences something different culturally. It could be the socioeconomic shift. It could be what uh, events are happening in society. For instance, landing on the moon, Challenger disaster, 9-11. All of these things happen at opportune moments in a young life, meaning if you're very young, these leave a residual effect on you. They're called the flashbulb memories of life. And then your cohort group. What are the other kids saying? How, what do they experience as well? We can take climate change. Climate change is affecting the young profoundly. So you imagine you're eight or six or 10 years old and you're thinking, whoa, all these storms, all this is awful. And we have to worry about all that, you know, place, the water's rising, all of the, that is normative to then. We've never had a yeah. generation had had to think this way. I'll tell you another thing this generation had never had to think about. We've never had to think about is a pandemic that causes us all to stay in the house for years. You, Brenda, you never, never once in your whole life as a child did you say to yourself, well, you know, I might have to stay home for two years because it might, you know, there might be a disease out there. You follow? It was in, never happened. Now, imagine you're a kid and that is part and parcel to how you will think about the future. That will change you. That will change you. And so these changes start when you're young, and then they sort of stay with you. And then the crowd that you were raised with, as it were, the kids around your age, share that balkanized experiences. So going back to your point, what are some of the differences? Boomers, we were raised under what's called the Great Compression. If you think about the Great Compression, that was when more people were compressed into the middle class. So there weren't the super rich and there weren't the super poor, but there was a lot of people more in the middle. So the blue collar and the white collar mingled. We were sort of all in one happy family. That went on for about 30 years. But the problem is it shifted. When Gen X came of age, when they started getting of age, we saw some societal shifts, economic downturns, uh, dads losing their promise, the covenant jobs. You're going to have a job for life. Now they tell the kids, watch yourself, be employable, don't trust as much. So you have these kids who are latchkey kids raised on their own. They're our most independent generation. In my view, I think Gen X is probably the most interesting the generation because they're the most enigmatic I think there's a duality to them, meaning that they get annoyed with everybody. You know this irritation thing? Everyone, they think everyone is needy. Why can't you just figure this out? In fact, that's what they say about the young. My argument against this notion that everyone is needy, I don't disagree with that. I believe everyone has needs, but the manifestation of needs is unique to the people. For instance, you know what uh, Gen X needs? They need their own space. They need to have sort of an independence. They need to have people that can just figure it out for themselves because that's what they've always done. And so they like that in others. We look for in others what we want, not what who they are, but we want what we want them to be. This is why it's difficult recruiting sometimes because if you're a Gen Xer and you're recruiting these young people, you think, oh my God, they just want my attention all day long. They, they can't do anything alone. They got to follow me around the building. They got to do everything what I do. I don't like to operate that way. But the reality is they work on a collaborative model. So when you get to these millennials, their sort of uh, sensibility has been uh, about engagement. 
I use parental models. The model for a millennial parent is what's called concerted cultivation. That means these kids are raised in dialogue. They've been talking to their parents and negotiating with their parents all their lives. So when they get into the workplace, that's just an extension of how they operate. So when you tell them, giving them an assignment, they start to tell you, well, I'm thinking of doing it this way. And you're going, what? I didn't tell you how to. I'm, been, <laughs> this, I'm just telling you to do it. You're not. This isn't a negotiation. This is what I'm telling you to so they view it as an opportunity to talk about it. We view it as insubordination to some degree because you're not doing what I tell you the way I told you to do it. We view it as a challenge. The thing that cracked my head about you talking about that parental model is you mentioned if the people who are managers, the later boomers and the Gen Xers who raise these millennials, yes. if you would treat them the way you treat your own kids, you've invited them to ask you questions. You've invited them to collaborate on problems in the household yes. and figure out how to get things done themselves. And then you go to work and you're like, well, I want it to be the way I grew up with the boomers. We're just going to we're going to be told how it's done. Give me my space. I'm going to get it done. So your thing about why don't you treat these younger employees I mean, not to make unhealthy boundaries, but treat them as you would treat your own children in a way. Absolutely. I think that is the essence of this. See, what we do is in the home, we see them as special. We see our, our offspring yes. as, oh my God, I, I, you're so And layered. we tell them you're they're so special. And we tell them they're special. And we say, you're very gifted. You're super talented. Oh, by the way, we, we shouldn't say that you're very talented because that actually inhibits their willingness to take risks and try things. But we should say you're making progress. But we say they're very talented. All that. But when they get to the workplace, we say none of those things because we look at them in the workplace as younger versions of us in the workplace when in fact they are not. They are unique unto themselves. And then we get really frustrated with them at work. And to your point, treat them as you would treat your own. You give your own children the benefit of the doubt. Why can't you do that in the workplace? You explain everything your children need to know. Why can't you explain that in the workplace? You see, the, we have to move off of the assumptions we have of others and really understand what do they need from me? They need individually to do their work well. You see, what we do is we assume they need from me what I need to do my work well. And I think that's a false assumption. It's sort of like, what is that? The, the golden rule, do what others would you like? It's the platinum rule is do what others what they would want them to have done to them, you see, which is different. At the very beginning of the book, I think when you're first starting about the generations, you say, maybe we should try to understand more than get others to conform. I think there is, a, just as you said, in the workplace, there's a tendency to, this is how I learned to do this job. So I'm going to assume you should learn how to do this job this way. It worked for me. As yes. opposed to taking the time, it's also inefficient to slow down and try to understand the other person you don't understand. We're going to take time for that. Can I just show you how to do the job? I mean, yes. Well, I'll tell you the other problem with this, to your point, is when we were growing up in the workplace, nobody was taking the time to do it for us. And so we had to figure it out. Correct. We had to be comfortable with the ambiguity. I argue that they are not as comfortable with ambiguity because they don't have to be. They can find sources of information. They can get uh, somebody who tell them to explain it to them. Uh, they play video games where they say, what are the rules to get to the next level? So all of their habits align with a removal of ambiguity. And this is what they find frustrating is, why do I have to guess? Why don't you just give me, let me in on this? So I think their frustration is interesting. I also think when yeah. we think we are successful, I hate to say this, but we are, anyone who's listening to me on your podcast is probably successful in what they do. And so what we do is we impart what our successes in terms of how, what we, our lessons learned to the young, but we don't take the context of that in terms of today's marketplace. You see, because I think the marketplace shifts in terms of how we go get our services. Who do we seek for advice? What means do we use to get information about getting that advice? You see, we're not leveraging the young's access 
to how we gather information to make a buying decision. And so in that sense, I think we should draw from them a little bit and say, here's what I want to accomplish in my business. This is what I, how I wanted to grow. This is what I need to do to grow. How would you go about it in helping me? Because one day they will transition to ownership of this business. So bring them in earlier and make it sticky. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. It sounds like a primary barrier, and it is a human barrier, which is very difficult, is we are called to act competent and confident in our positions. The higher we rise in hierarchies, people talk about, I just talked to someone last week about her experience in executive boardrooms, and she said, after a while, I got really frustrated Because people were just, no one could admit they didn't know. No one could ask questions. You had to act as if you always knew what the answer was. And if you didn't, you could go get it and don't worry. And if that's the message, it's very hard to do what you're talking about, which is asking people below you or younger than you, what should we do? What what do you think? (laughs) That's hard. Well, I'll tell you, because I, frankly, and it's in the book as well, I call this, we have to embrace our lopsidedness. That means everybody, everybody brings something to the table. And by the way, as the manager, leader of a veterinary clinic or the uh, the people who work there, you have expertise that I need. I can't know that. You can teach me that. But at the same time, there might be things I can bring to the table. So it's okay, I think, as a leader to say, look, I need you for that. I need you for this because there are things I'm okay at, but I don't want to do them and or that you can do them better. It's good to say that. And by the way, people need to hear that you have, I hate to say this, but you should share your failures. Not every day. Don't say every day I failed at something, but rather you are where you are because you made a series of mistakes you did not repeat. That's why are you successful? You're successful not because you never made a mistake, but rather you learn from the mistakes you made. All humans make mistakes. So I think we should be more encouraging of saying, look, when I was doing this your age, this is one of the things that I did. I, was, I thought it was going to blow up. You know, this is the worst thing I ever did. It was awful. I made a mistake here. But I learned from it. But I think that gives people more assurance that say this is going to happen versus the panic of saying, oh, my God, nobody ever seems to make a mistake. And I've just made one, which curtails the risk taking or curtails the effort to want to do more. I think people are good at saying the cliche. For instance, they're good at deploying the thing, which is, well, I'm so successful because I made all the mistakes already. But very seldom do they say, for example, five years ago, I did this. So very seldom do they go into the colorful example right after they give the platitude. 
That's exactly right. I want us to be, because I, I think we're going to go away from this great man or great woman theory of leadership. There is no, in the future, there's no great man or great woman. It's the great coordinator. I think what you're going to see is the responsibility of leaders and managers to so identify all the relevant strengths available in terms of my workforce and how do I best use them and or pivot the opportunities or pivot to opportunities as a consequence. So I think that's the way to go because the key here is that if you hire smart people, they should be doing things that smart people do. <laughs> so give over to Caesar what Caesar does. And, and I think everyone's sort of, for instance, in my world, I know nothing about computers or social media or anything like that. And I have no problem saying that because I need the help of another. So I'll ask for the help of another. I would never pretend to know something I don't know. But I do know some things. So there's where, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I own some things, but other things I don't. So I'm okay to give that away. I think we have to get rid of a little of our ego. You know, there's an ego issue here as well. So you do the front half of the book, and I was surprised how much it went into it. And it was very interesting. Again, it's all kind of selling and explaining the generations and where yes. these misperceptions and miscommunications arise. And then the back half, you're like, okay, let me get into the meat and potatoes. And so I wondered maybe here on the back half, there are a few things you tell people they need to change. And maybe you could just give the highlights and they want the deeper stuff that could go to the back half of this book and get it. One of the first things you mentioned is the performance review. And there's oh, yes. a lot of stuff talked about how performances reviews stink. And I think you're arguing performance reviews stink. Is there a particular thing you'd like people to switch up the performance review? If they're older, you're an older manager, what do they not understand about this younger generation that's making a complete mismatch with the performance review you had before is not the performance review they need now? Yes. Well, remember now, the performance review we had before was really just a ritual more than anything else, right? If you're guaranteed the job, you had once a year, you had the ritual. And often you even wrote your own performance review and somebody just signed off on it. You see what I'm saying? It was a ritual. Right. You knew, okay, does this going to affect my bonus or my raise or anything like that? And so you knew things along and you accepted what was said. You didn't even question it. You just accepted it. Now, the problem with that is in the day today, if you give somebody uh, feedback, even two months later from what they had done, they're going, well, if it was important, why didn't you say it when it occurred? Why are you holding on to this? So these notions of, of feedback mechanisms that have a delay anywhere from, you know, two months to a year is irrelevant to then to the listener saying, how important can this be? So the other part of these uh, feedback mechanisms that they're not really accurate, they're highly skewed around, let's say, Brendan, I'm mentioning 12 things on you. Well, we're doing a podcast. Um, is it how you organize your shelving anything to do with an evaluation of a podcast? Probably not. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So, But yeah. you are evaluated on that. And then I give you a poor evaluation on your organization of a shelving. You start looking at that as if that becomes important in an equal measure to your podcasting skills, your, 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 your verbalization, your organization, all the things you do that makes this thing work. You follow? We misalign the attention of our employees towards bringing things up that are not necessarily germane to the criticality of where they are succeeding in our organization. No, but I do understand, and you do mention this in the book, you understand why HR sets up a, a templated performance review. Yes. You understand why that is, because you're trying to be fair. It's in the interest of being exactly. fair and making sure everybody's judged equally. But in your argument for lopsidedness, you cannot judge everybody equally because these strengths I'm supposed to be deploying are not the strengths the person on the other side of the cube for me is supposed to be deploying. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. And but then we do some of these horrible things like, oh, A players or B players, you know, or I like this one. This one really annoys me. We use the term hypo. You ever heard hypo is high potential employees. You know what a high potential employee okay. is? 
It's a human being. That's what it is. But when you start to say this person is hypo and these 80% are not, well, then you're just saying to them, quietly quit. We're not going to spend any more time with you. So just ease up. That's what you're telling them. Ease up. The real potential is over here, which I think is another mistake. So the other point, too, on this is because it ties to performance appraisals is we were warred against that to uh, some percentage at the top. Then the bell curve in the middle gets something and then somebody at the bottom gets nothing. And my point in that is we reward individuals, which causes us to suboptimize, meaning I start competing with you for resource inside my own company. What we should be doing is saying, how does this team contribute to the bottom line? And then we should reward teams. And then inside of teams, the lopsidedness says, what is your contribution to this particular team? And that's your share of the reward. My point is we tie them more together as opposed to individuals, because individuals will always compete at the expense of the larger agenda. I did want to ask that because I remember when you talked about that incentivizing the team instead of individuals, Mm -hmm. you even said, and you might even consider letting the team decide how to take here are the incentives for the pool that the team has, distribute them. Does that really work? Does somebody take 10%, somebody takes 8%, somebody takes 5% in a team? Well, the question becomes, again, I think you don't do that at the end because I think you do that at the beginning saying, okay, here's the deal. You are responsible for the voice of our team. That's who you are, Brendan. You're the voice of our team. What do you think that's worth as teams? What do you think that's worth in terms of your share of the reward? You would say, well, it's, I'm the front man. I, I'd say, you know, you might argue, oh, 20%. And somebody say, okay, then what is the IT portion of this worth? I think that's 15%. Whatever the point is, everybody gets their share. Now, at okay. the end of this time together, you don't have to say, wait a second. You would just say, did you do your job? Did we get what we want as the team? Did the organization get what they want from this team? Then we give the reward in accordance to what we already agreed. I think the agreement has to precede the distribution. The agreement should precede okay. the distribution. That would be the best way to make it work. Oh, by the way, will there be problems? Absolutely. But the point of that is I'm more willing to help you, Brendan, in an area that doesn't compete with you. So, for instance, you're the voice of this. I said, Brendan, I'm working on the IT area, but I noticed in your voice area, you know, you seem to have some issues around this. Anything? What about this? My point is I'm not competing with you. You're not going to take over... The IT person is going to take over your job. They're just trying to help you get better at what you're doing because the team gets better. So where sometimes we compete with, you know, we give advice either because we're, I think we're in competition often. And this has been studied. If you have a team of A players, they might not get the same, do as well as a team than if you have a team of B players who have complementary skills and they get along. They can outperform. So in that sense, a lot of this is, do we get along, number one? And two, am I doing what I do best in my contribution to this team? You see, that's the key. You mentioned the getting along in the team, which leads me to, I wanted to mention this too, because I love this. I don't think I've seen anybody talk about this. And in the past few years, this has become a huge thing. Giant businesses have heard that millennials want mentorship. So they come out of school or they come through their first careers. Oh, they want somebody. So they get assigned people. And you're like, this is not a mentorship thing. Mentors, and I like this because this reminds me of back in the academy, where when you found someone to be on your thesis committee or you found someone to be a mentor, you liked this person. They liked your work and you liked their work and you wanted to work together. There's a personal bond with this person as opposed to like just getting assigned someone. You're like, don't do this. So tell me the difference between what you see is this is the good mentorship where you're going to build a strong relationship. And this is this half-assed mentorship that gets pitched as a program. 
Yeah, so, well, that's the problem with the word. In fact, I had to have, rewrite that chapter three times because I was just so hard on people. So, uh, so they, they said, <laughs> oh, you, gotta... so you were so negative. You're like, I need to back yeah. off. Yeah, I had to back off. I had to, make, I had to soften it, let's just say, because uh, okay, to your yeah, point, yeah. we don't often say, you're going to be my mentor to a human. We say, in retrospect, this person was my mentor. You see what I'm saying? Also so what yeah. you started, for instance, in your thesis committee, somebody liked you and you liked them. And this worked back and forth. Eventually, it evolved into mentoring. The problem when you say mentoring up front, it implies intimacy that isn't earned. Like, and imagine I'm a, in my age and, and a 24 year old comes into my office and all of a sudden they start sharing their personal life. And I'm going, whoa, I don't know you. I, and I don't care about your personal life. I just was going to help you get the job done. You see, but the, there's an assumption of language when we use a term like mentor. I would say I like programs that help people connect. I would look for things of commonality. Let's say your goal is to learn about, I don't know, social media. I like teaching people about social media. That is the essence of advice. So what we should have is, is advisor relationships that are more constricted or tighter to a goal that somebody wants to achieve. And if it blossoms into something deeper, so be it. But to say to somebody, I will guide your career when I don't know you, and I'm not sure that you are right for this career at this point. You see what I'm saying? It requires yeah. too much of both parties. Both parties, I feel awkward as a consequence of that. That's why I'm a big fan of advisor or shepherd or buddy or guide. But mentor, again, is a much deeper bond that is uh, built over a long arc of time, not based on a, an HR assignment. I mean, it really does go back to that quote I like, where loyalty is an outcome of promises kept, not promises made. I feel yeah. like mentorship programs, you make promises at the front, but a mentorship, you feel a bond with this mentor over time because of promises kept. Not a pitch that was made at the beginning, but you're right. That advisory thing where we have a process for this. We teach you how to do this. It's, then it can be, it's a part of on. It's a nice part of onboarding where you yeah. matched with someone as opposed to. See, I have always suggested, look, you're in a company you have. What you should do is I've, I've said create a database of everything. Anyone, anyone in that company is willing to teach another human being. And what you do, it becomes a, a repository. And then I could be a, a 24-year-old person, and I say, oh, I like to teach people how to use TikTok. Okay, now my boss's boss can come in my office and say, okay, I'll spend an hour or two every once or month or so, and I'll teach you how to use TikTok. Right. My point is reverse mentoring is as powerful as mentoring, but it, the whole idea here is teaching is teaching. So if you find somebody who has something to teach and you match them with somebody who wants to learn it, now you've built a relationship and let that happen. We can do that. You see, that's easy. That has low barrier to resistance. I like it also because it, it crosses uh, whatever hierarchical strata are. If yes. the boss's boss's boss wants to learn TikTok, they might go to the expert who's way down in the chain, who knows about it. And those cross conversations are great. Yeah, that's what I, I, I would try to remove the names of the people that are the teachers because then people play the system. Nice. Interesting. See, because if I know you're the, oh, wait, the, the CEO likes stamp collecting. Oh, you know, I think I've always loved that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Currying favor. Right. Yeah, exactly. So lastly, for engagement, if there is an issue right now with holding on to people, so people are getting burned out and it seems like managers are frustrated with these young people who just, mm -hmm. they just don't have this. This is the complaint we hear. They don't have the same work ethic. They don't do the job like I did. They don't work as hard. They want all this work-life balance. They want all these flexible work arrangements. Is there other than, so I think they could read this book and that would help 
open their mind a little bit and change their perception. But is there a short thing you tell people to help them? What's is their first question to ask if you're struggling with this where you were mismatched with your employee base? Is there a first question or a first few questions to start asking to dig into? What's going on? Are you really? Yeah, well, it's an interesting. First of all, I don't think there is a such thing as work-life balance. I think work life, anyone who asks for work-life balance is saying, in effect, this is a symptom of the problem. They're saying the work itself is overwhelming my private life because I'm doing things that I want to get away from and have more private life. You see, I want to get away from the work to have a private life. So my point here is that if you can make work more engaging, and what that means is it doesn't have to be 100% of the time you're doing things you love to do, but as little as 20% of the work that somebody does that they find to have deep meaning from, meaning this is the part of the job. For instance, uh, there's a book called Flow. The idea of flow is that if you're really good at something in particular, uh, like you have a hobby or something in some way or some part of a job, you start doing it and then you forget, oh, it's six hours later. I've been doing this for six hours. I didn't realize I was doing this for that long. The point is there are moments where you are in flow of what you are doing. And so what we should be doing is thinking about, okay, who's working for me here? What are they doing? How can I expand the areas of their contribution in areas that they align what they're most interested in doing? And so in that, I I give them something in return for what they're getting from me. The other thing is we are not very good at measuring performance. We just say they don't work as hard as me. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I don't know what you're doing. I think you might just be stupid, you know, and slow. That's why right. they'll have to, you know, you know what I'm saying? Because they just might be smarter. They might be doing in 30 minutes what it takes you five hours to do because you're slower. But my point is we're measuring buns on seats or the process, but we're not looking at the outcomes. What are the outcomes we want from these people? And what is the level of quality associated with that? What are the models for that? So my point is you have to be more tangible with what you're asking them to do on your behalf versus making conclusions about them based on your bias or your perception of them. You don't want this. You see, somebody says, I want to leave at five today. Okay. I would say that as a boomer, I would have loved to have said that, but the first time I said it, it didn't go well. So, but what we, <laughs> right? So you don't want to say that again. Yeah. But in the world of work, you really want to say, did you do what you needed to do to leave at five? That's the question. So what is it they're doing? And so that's where it gets a little difficult. We're not great at measuring the productivity of what they actually need to do, but we're really great at observing buns on seats. So we think that we, there's the fake productivity, you know, busy. We can look busy. Yes, I see the people. They're where they should be. Exactly. They must be doing the work. So we just spent a ton of time complaining about the millennials. This <laughs> Now I promise is my last question. Everyone's complained about the millennials. Now the millennials are getting old enough to start complaining about the next generation. Yes. So could you tell me something positive? In the book, you do tell us some things about Gen Z, this group that's just meeting the workforce. So they're in their yes. teens and they're in their 20s, just joining the workforce. And we spent all this time criticizing millennials. Can you tell something positive about Gen Z that makes you excited about, ooh, they might do something really crazy when they get in charge here? Yes. Well, uh, first of all, I think they're interesting in the sense that they have moved the dime on uh, diversity and inclusion and equity, meaning that this is an interesting talking point and it's an interesting aspiration that companies aspire to. And it's great. And we're moving in the direction of saying, how can we be more pluralistic? How can we be more inclusive? They're going to make demands of that because they're going to see the American society shift into a true pluralist society. So everyone, by the time they are adults in terms of their power in the workplace, we will be literally no one will be in the majority in the United States. 
And if we have a society that is actually representative of humanity, which the United States will be, they are positioned to guide it because they are most accepting of the pluralistic, diverse, and inclusive society. That's hopeful. We will have a rough time getting there, but when we arrive, they will embrace it. And I think that's the beauty of who they are. Chris DeSantis's book, Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work, is available on Amazon as well as cpdesantis.com. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review wherever you listen, tell your friends in VetMed about us, and remember, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to solving your leadership headaches in our VedEx Leaders community. Learn more at drdavenickel.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.